I'm Mormon Alney. When he was head of UCLA's Anderson Forecast, Ed Lemer was first to predict the Great Recession of 2008. That was then. This is now. Last time we spoke, Ed and I were together in a studio in Westwood. Now we're on separate microphones as we shelter in our respective houses for this edition of UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works. Ed Lemer, great to talk with you as always. Warren, it's great to have you here in my office, isolated as I am under <laughs> or in the state quarantine. It makes a good, uh, different thing to do uh, during one of these uh, relatively long days. Well, you do need something to keep you busy. So tell me, is there any doubt at this point that we are in a recession again? The only doubt is whether you want to call it a recession because it's so distinct. But the traditional definitions are rising unemployment, uh, unwanted idleness, not just of workers, but of capital as well. And uh, sometimes they say you have to have two negative quarters of GDP growth, and we've had one, and we're almost certainly have another one. I think this will be designated a recession by the PhD committee of the National Bureau of Economic Research that has that function. But at the same time, we want to think of this as really a rather different kind of phenomenon than the recessions that we're used to. What's different about it? The normal situation of an economy is that it has a healthy phase in which unemployment is falling typically and it's growing nicely and there's no negative GDP growth. And then it has an unhealthy phase. It's kind of a virus that affects the economy and we get tipped into a recession. And usually that recession is created by inappropriate lifestyles for the economy where we uh, fatten up the housing sector and we fatten up the auto sector. And at some point we have too much of both of those. And the Fed raises interest rates, thinking that inflation is coming. And that just kills off those two sectors. And down we go. This time, the kinds of imbalances that I was just talking about are simply not present. The housing has been very, very weak in this expansion. And it's certainly when they're certainly not in an overbuilt situation, the automobiles have been a little strong last year, and up around 17 million units, but it didn't look like that was going to be the source of a real recession. And there's been discussion now for a couple of years about whether a recession is imminent. Our view was probably not, because it's not going to be created by the usual imbalances. And so that's the typical story, which is kind of an illness story. This is, we have a physical illness that's affecting everybody, this COVID-19 and the governments around the world, really, have been, been slow to respond, meaning they didn't identify and isolate and prevent the community spread. And as a result, they had the only option left it was shutting down the economy. So we're experiencing what might be called a shutdown rather than a recession. But it has very similar symptoms. It's had a spike in unemployment, a big decline in retail sales already through March and The GDP number came in negative in the first quarter. The second quarter is going to be way worse than the first. So the symptoms are exaggerated. The cause is entirely different. Well, governments maybe can be justified in being slow because this is the novel coronavirus. They didn't know anything about it, uh, at least, and apparently don't know much now. Uh, And given that fact, you headed the Anderson forecast for 17 years. Has so much changed, and is this so distinct from other recessions, 
that it's difficult even to use the same standards to measure economic activity and make uh, projections? Well, um, if you're talking the same standards, I guess you may mean using the historical record. The standard that I talked about before was to decide what to call it. And I'm inclined to think we might as well just call it a recession. But I understand that the questions this time are quite unlike the questions in the typical recession. So first of all, we had that unprecedented spike up in the weekly initial claims for unemployment. And so we're going to hear the unemployment rate's going to go up some, but this situation in the labor market is completely unprecedented, where almost overnight, everybody had to shelter in place. So then the question is, how do we get out of this? What's the process of getting out? And that's a totally different kind of thing than what we've been experiencing, because typically you get a timeout that allows the economy to catch up with the homes and automobiles that have already been built, that lays the foundation for the next expansion. You're off and running when that occurs, typically helped out by low interest rates from the Fed. This time, none of that applies. We don't have to correct the imbalances that were created during the last expansion. We have to get well in a uh, physical human sense and not in in the sense of the economy. And we don't really know how that's going to play out. I look at the most recent data. They're talking about opening up the economy. I look at uh, newly announced uh, cases, and there's still plenty around, plenty out there. I'm thinking, should I be uh, jumping on opportunities to go to a restaurant again or go to a movie? I'm thinking, no way. I want to see the number of infections out there go way low so I don't happen to bump into somebody. And actually get this uh, virus. So I don't think anybody knows at this point, even the health officials know when we're going to get at the point where I can safely resume my normal life. And until that happens, the economy is going to be in a sluggish phase and not real recovery. So I think this we're going to have a depth of a recession in terms of rising unemployment levels, in terms of offices and, and retail outlets that go underutilized. We're going to have an unprecedented increase in those, and it's going to be a slow recovery the way I said. And does the speed of the recovery depend on the science and the testing and on when we can be told in a effective way or convincing way that it is safe to go out because so much depends on consumer behavior? Yeah, I think it absolutely has to have a, a vaccine before the economy can return to normal. That's talking about my psychology and projecting that on everybody else. I don't want to open up the risk that I'm going to get that coronavirus, particularly when you hear the stories about how bad it can be in affecting the liver and the kidneys and and the brain and leaving lifetime damage. Who wants to risk that, even if it's a very low probability? So we're going to need a vaccine or have what they call herd immunity, enough people who have this stuff. So the number of cases gets so small that you feel it's okay. You're not going to bump into one of those people, particularly if you're a little bit careful. Then we can all go back to normal. Until then, it seems to me that this virus, because it still hasn't infected very many people, is going to leave uh, infected individuals roaming about out there on the streets. And that's going to keep most of us at home until we feel more confident that we can go out without getting the, the infection. Well, there's talk now about opening up the economy in various different states and in various different parts of states. How much uncertainty is there 
for business under these circumstances to try to determine whether or not it makes sense to open up again? Well, I tell you what, I think the businesses, the big problem that they have is debt. And debt comes in the form of borrowing, but it also comes in the form of lease payments for the retail stores that they inhabit. And they have to get some kind of a cash flow to justify their existence. Otherwise, they're going to go bankrupt and disappear. The problem with opening up is it's going to have an impact on revenue, but it's more likely to have a bigger impact on cost. You're going to ramp up the employment level and probably um, more rapidly than you actually ramp up sales. I mean, they're talking about opening up restaurants at one quarter of normal capacity. So that still strikes me as a loss-making enterprise for those restaurants. And they're going to be reluctant to open up. They're going to be reluctant to have their employees be exposed to coronavirus. And one of their employees, probably a friend in these small businesses, gets ill and dies. Their owner is going to feel terrible about that. They're going to want to avoid that. So that's on the sales side. On the demand side, I'm thinking, do I want to go into a restaurant which is one quarter full because of the risk of coronavirus? It just reminds me of the wrong thing. They're after 9-11. I'm sure you warned and saw it as many times as I did. I saw the crash of the World Trade Center over and over and over. Yeah. And that left a psychic burning inside of myself, a scar that didn't go away. And in terms of airline travel, it took several years before the airlines got back to normal where people kind of forgot that the agony that they went through. I think it's going to take some time for Americans to recover and to ignore the coronavirus altogether and go about their daily lives as they did historically. That's really a great point. And the environment depends a lot on uh, what you do. If there aren't a lot, of ta- a lot of tables in the restaurant or if there are a whole lot of empty seats on the plane, you're just reminded of why uh, nobody else is there. But what about the trillions in federal stimulus approved by the Congress, signed by the president? There's supposed to be more to come. Is it being targeted and spent to be as effective as possible Uh, in order to move toward recovery? Well, I don't know about recovery, but my own view is that it should be targeted on the people who lost their jobs. They are fighting the coronavirus by staying in place, and they are not receiving their salaries. We should have done everything we could in order to maintain the lifestyles of those individuals. And we were all concerned about the Healthcare people who are out in the hospitals and urgent care areas and exposing themselves. But let's not forget the unemployed people are working for us too because they're helping prevent the community spread. They're doing us all big service. So if I'd been president, rather than using debt in order to pass the cost on to the next generation, I would oppose the tax on the people who are still working and have that money distributed directly to those who lost their jobs as a consequence of the shutting down the economy. Now, that's not recovery. That's just doing the right thing under the circumstances. Recovery is difficult because you don't want the firms to go bankrupt because then they will never recover. They're going to have bankruptcy issues because of the debt that they're still carrying, unless the economy bounces back a lot more quickly than I think it will. So that's another reason. There's basically two reasons, I think, why we're going to have a sluggish recovery. One is employment. It's a relationship based on trust and understanding. 
And when you break that relationship by firing somebody or letting them go, or the government sends them home for a certain period of time, it's very difficult to recreate it. It takes a very long time. If you look at the data, the um, unemployment rates typically jumps up in recessions. It takes about under a year, maybe six, seven, eight months for that to go from where it was to some peak. But it takes three or four or five or six, seven years to get back to where it was before. So that means you get a sluggish recovery because it's very hard to recreate these relationships. They're based on trust and understanding between the employer and the employee. And when you have a new employer and a new employee, there's doubtfulness between each other. You might not have a contract. Even if you have a contract, you have to learn about each other. So it's a slow learning recovery process. This one could be even worse because the economy likely is to be sluggish which means the employers are going to be reluctant to form those relationships because they don't want to hire somebody they're going to have fire next. My feeling of sluggishness is, is first of all, because of the difficulty and time and energy it takes to create an employment relationship. The second one is the debt level that many corporations and small businesses are burdened with where they've got to get a cash flow to do the debt service and maybe draw down the debt. If they don't, they're forced into bankruptcy. So in those circumstances, those firms are not trying to expand, trying to create new meals and see if we'll go for that. They just want to control the cost so that they can exist and live through this thing and not go through bankruptcy. And one of the ways of controlling costs is not to hire additional workers. You might switch toward automation, more services being taken out of the individuals who do show up, and you're reluctant to expand back to the employment levels that you had before. If we open up too soon, as some people have warned about, uh, and there is a second wave of the virus, uh, or even one after that, is that simply going to make things much more difficult than they already are? Well, sure, because I'm going to be even more cautious at that point. You look at the data, they talk about flattening the curve, but flattening the curve doesn't mean that you still don't have new coronavirus cases. If you look at the curve of how many new people are being discovered with the coronavirus every day, that's not falling dramatically. That rose very much in April and March. And that means that for you and me, there's lots of people out there we need to avoid. If we shake their hands or get near them when they sneeze, we're going to end up with that coronavirus. So what the second wave does, that memory effect is going to be very substantial and it's going to slow down the recovery enormously. Let's talk a bit about leadership. All presidents want to make things look better than they really are. Uh, but from President Trump, there have been mixed messages. There's warnings one day and there's reassurance the next. How unsettling is that to businesses who are trying to decide what to do? Uh, you know, I really know about, don't know about businesses, but I can tell you my own feeling is that it's aggravating that we don't have a more concerted federal solution to our problems. I understand a lot has to be done at the state and municipal levels. I think we've got great leadership here in California. I've been very impressed by the governor of New York, Cuomo, the way he seems to be handling it. And that's all about honesty and empathy. Honesty and empathy is what we ought to be having from our leadership at this time, because if there isn't honesty, we can't really trust what they say. And if it isn't empathy, we don't want to hear them. 
We want them to be aware of the pain and struggle that we're going through. And the problem with Trump is that he has not effectively communicated either honesty or empathy. And that leaves us as Americans kind of dangling and disconnected because he's got his followers who want to applaud him for everything he does. And then he's got his opponents and we're not being brought together. Normally a crisis like this would create unity rather than disunity. And I really fear we're having the opposite. Is unity then something that is crucial to recovery? And will the lack of unity delay that from happening? I don't know. I'm thinking about this. I think what unity means is that we all feel empathy and concern for all Americans, no matter where they live, no matter what their ethnic backgrounds are. Everybody's an American. And when they have exposure to this COVID, we all feel responsible and want to help them out. I can see how that feeling might make things easier in the recovery, but off the top of my head, I'm not so sure. You talked about uh, what might happen with respect to the relationship between employers and employees. Uh, You talked also about automation. Um, There are people who are saying that we'll never get back to normal uh, in the usual sense of that term. Do you think that's right? Are we seeing what will amount to... uh, some sort of evolutionary change? I'm an educator, you know, I teach at UCLA, and UCLA is doing a lot of uh, internet-based education right now. If that can be solved, if we can find out actually how to do that effectively, because I'm a big believer that knowledge is created in conversations. Learning is done in conversations, and you have conversations in your classroom and you have them in your offices. Face-to-face is very important. At the same time, if we can mimic that conversational experience with online, suitably designed online training, that could be extremely good. I mean, really, there are two sectors of the economy that don't care about cost control. One is health and the other one is education. If we get Internet-based education, which is really high quality and credible, that could be extremely good for all these young Americans who are paying incredible fees and building up their own debt just to get a college education. I think it could happen because we've been forced to use the technology before we just resisted it and didn't really try. Now everybody, all the faculty members are trying it. They'll tell you it's not successful, it's not successful. But I do think that a lot of uh, education could be done in a very cost-effective way, uh, using long distance. This idea, which is a personal response because I'm an educator, it applies elsewhere as well. I think restaurants have had um, have been worried a long time about that $15 minimum wage. Many restaurant owners would told me that at eight or nine dollars they wouldn't automate, but when it got to eleven or twelve or thirteen, then we start to automate. And you could see that already in many stores where where you didn't have a waiter that you had an iPad that was sitting in front of you and you did your ordering your own. I could see that occurring in that setting. Working at home, as you and I are doing now, might become more common. All the congestion that we have on the streets here in Los Angeles, that could be become better because more people stay at home. I'd have to know on a case-by-case basis, but I think the fact that we're all being forced to behave differently is going to leave us with changes that right now are pretty hard to predict. 
in the short term. Doesn't that mean a lot of retraining? Yes. In the case of education, it's, I wouldn't call it training, just experience. And the truth is that people get PhDs in all their fields, and they know nothing about education. They haven't had any course in education, no particular training, typically. I know myself, I spent a whole lifetime learning about what it means to be an educator. I try things and it doesn't work. I try something else, something works well, I feel great. But it's been a lifetime and it never ends. So I think the fact that people are trying out the internet-based type of education, that comes with a lot of learning, particularly if you're committed to making that environment work for the students. It could make people really aware of what it takes to make effective long-distance uh, internet-based education. Well, what I'm talking about is if, in fact, we're going to go to more automation uh, and if there's going to be more internet experience and so on, people who are currently doing the jobs that will ultimately be automated are going to have to go someplace. Will they be retrained? Is it time for direct income subsidies or uh, how do we deal with them? Well, I think we've had this conversation before about my concern in the very long run, not just next year or the year after, that uh, the computer will be doing a lot of work for us. Artificial intelligence, um, so-called machine learning, those things can displace a lot of white-collar jobs. It used to be the jobs that were threatened were the physical jobs. You had what might be called robots or equipment that would carry out those tasks, and you need fewer and fewer workers in manufacturing, for example, because of the improvements in productivity that came with new equipment all the time. But the computer pushing in now at the intellectual activities, and that would leave the, the architects and lawyers who are still going to be gainfully employed. Those are the ones who are creative, analytical thinkers, problem solvers, not people who are carrying out the routine, uh, mundane tasks that many lawyers and architects have done historically. Now, retraining may not work because they might have the talent to be exceptional architects and lawyers and educators for that matter. Then we move into a world of even more inequality than we have now. And not based on educational attainment only, but also on the raw native talent to make use of that computer to create new products and new solutions to old problems. So I worry about uh, rewards for materialistic success in an environment in which on that score, there's a few of us who get A's and live in our fancy gated communities. And the rest of us get F's from the economy because we don't have the wherewithal to deal with the new technological world that we're moving into. And to me, that that calls for more progressive income tax, but it also calls for cultural changes in which we value things like contributions to the communities. How much have you made our world better rather than how big your home is and how fancy your car is? So is what we're going through demonstrating the fundamental inequities in the economy to such an extent that we might actually end up doing something about them? That would be great. We're talking Bernie Sanders now. The problem with Bernie Sanders, for all his forceful rhetoric, the financing of all that he wanted to have was really unclear. And I think you can't just beat up on the wealthy, the billionaires, and and think of billionaires as being an epithet of some kind. But to say that many of them have made their billions because of the incredible 
contributions that they have made to all of us by the innovations that have created that make our lives so much better. But what we needed billionaires to understand is that we're all in this together and they've got to start paying a whole lot more taxes, call it charitable contributions, to make the rest of the Americans have better lives than they have, and particularly better health care, for example. There are those who say that uh, given the wealth and income gaps that we have, uh, comparable as they are to uh, the 19th century, that we'd better have what exactly what you're talking about, or they're going to be coming down the street with the pitchforks. Yeah, I worry about that, too. There's a lot of movies on Netflix that basically are talking about how those things get started. The fact that relatively poor workers have lost their jobs and had their lives just totally upended, where as the better off people can sit in their homes and work on computers, and it's just like it didn't happen. Yet we're not doing enough for those people who are really working on our behalf to contain this spread of the virus. We need to really step up as a country and contribute to them and to their lives. The stock market is going up and down, and uh, we see it every day, and a lot of attention is being paid to it by the president, among others. How important is the stock market uh, as a gauge of the future and of the economy? Well, it's certainly a gauge of the attitudes of the investors. I mean, r- roughly speaking, the price of a stock is is determined at the median of the opinions out there, so that the people who have the highest opinion are the ones who will pay most for it and end up with it. So you want those assets to be owned, and they are owned by the people who value it highly. That's That has something to do with the economy because those people are thinking about when they buy a company, whether that company is going to be worth much a year or two or three years from now. So the the investors are thinking about the future, but let's face it, nobody really knows what this future is. So it becomes almost kind of uh, pure psychology as to how far down it's going to go and how much it recovers. My view was it went down too far because I was still hopeful that the um, <clears throat> this would be a temporary phenomenon. Shutting down the economy would last a month or two, and then you would reopen. And if it hadn't been a long period of time, it could probably reopen rapidly. You have very quick, quick recovery. But I was slowly edged toward the other view, which is going to be a deep decline and it's going to be a slow recovery. Uh, that calls for lower stock prices, not not the kind of bounce back that we experienced in the last uh, several weeks. But on the other hand, I'm happy. <laughs> in my retirement, I'd like to see those numbers going up. Well, let's leave it at that. Uh, this has been How the World Works from UCLA's Anderson School talking with Ed Lehmer, former head of UCLA Anderson's forecast, now a professor emeritus at the UCLA Anderson School of Business. Thanks, Ed, so much for being with us. Thank you, Warren. It's always great. I'm Warren Alney. Thanks for listening.